Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Josh Tobin. Uh, Josh Tobin used to work for OpenAI and he has a lot of valuable insight into what is actually happening in AI and what is not happening in AI and what is just hype. Uh, these are some of my favorite episodes to do is talk to somebody knowledgeable about a subject and figure out what is hype and what is not. Uh, so really excited to bring this all to you and hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please uh, find us on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher and hitting the subscribe button. Um, and if you really like it, please go ahead and give us a review. I'm also on Twitter. If you have any thoughts on this episode, if you want to chat AI, if you want to chat anything else, just go ahead and send me a message on Twitter. My DMs are open. Uh, you can find me at Stuart Alsop III. Again, that's at Stuart Alsop III. Hope you enjoy this. Let me know what you think. Have a great day. I think a lot of people stop liking math when they're young because you know they get really stuck and they feel like you know I'm, I must not be good at this thing because I you know I get stuck and I get so frustrated with it. But um, one thing that I realized, and I think this really got cemented for me, in um, like when I went to grad school for math and I met you know some of the absolute you know, best up and coming mathematicians in the world was that like the smartest math people actually spend just as much time stuck as everyone else. And sometimes I think they spend more time stuck, um, but it's like their level of comfort with being stuck and how productive they're able to make that time that makes that, that makes the difference between, you know, whether someone really enjoys, you know, doing math and pushing through that or whether they get frustrated and stop. And that's really interesting because that comes from a sense of like inspiration or what is what is what is that thing that drives them to go through the the the, the breaks yeah i think it's like i think it's maybe it's different for different people i think um for a lot of people like i think for the type of people i met in grad school it's like mostly curiosity mm. um i think there there's definitely an aspect of, of confidence like uh-huh. i think you know once you get to the point where you realize like where you've done it a few times and you realize that if you just push through it you know eventually you will probably figure something out um, then it gets easier to be more comfortable with that. Um, yeah, I, I think like, I think for some, some other people, like I think probably I was in this category, it's more like stubbornness than anything else, <laughs> um, which, you know, worked really well for me for a long time, but probably was a sign that I was not, you know, meant to be a research mathematician. Uh-huh. And then how did you find your way into AI from, from thinking that you're doing math your whole life? Yeah, so I, um, I guess, you know, the story was I... Um, I didn't think I wanted to do math my whole life, but, you know, I kind of played around with a bunch of different things in high school and early in college. You know, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, then I thought I wanted to go into finance. Um, and then I, I realized that I just, you know, I, the, the thing that I was, um, that I was look, that I looked forward most to working hard on was uh, doing, you know, doing math problem sets and working through kind of some of the challenging problems that came up in the classes I was taking. And, um, and so I kind of had my sights set on that for really like two or three years um, for most of college. And, you know, so I did research over the summers, um, published a math paper, and, um, and I had this kind of this moment my, you know, the summer before my senior year of college when, um, you know, I was, I was sitting, like basically doing what I did the entire summer, which was I was sitting in my dorm by myself, um, staring at a whiteboard. <laughs> um, and I, and I was like, you know, as much as I actually enjoy this, um, I can't like, I can't picture myself doing this for the rest of my life. Like, you know, just this really, you know, antisocial life of like kind of um, just thinking really hard about stuff all the time and, you know, collaborating with people occasionally. But, um, you know, and then like working on things where, you know, the, the, the vast majority of the time, even if you work out what the answer is going to be, then 
you know, four or five people in the world are even going to care about it. <laughs> um, I love this. I love this topic, which is like essentially working out on the edges of something so obscure. Yeah. That nobody's going to care. Uh, yeah. Maybe even ever. And most likely, you know, for thousands of years, like yeah. nobody's going to care whether that happens, although that's changing with the Internet. And I'd be curious to hear what you think about that, particularly with like AI and these just, yeah, what, what, what this obscurity, what, what, what's your relationship to working on things that are totally obscure? Yeah, for sure. I think like the thing that I realized doing math was that I don't have, um, I don't have much of an appetite for that. Mm. Like I can do it for a while, but for me, it's just like, I need to see the link back to, you know, to what, uh, what the impact on the real world is going to be, or at least could be. I think it's interesting when you talk to a lot of like really top tier research mathematicians, they um, they either don't, don't care about that at all mm. or they've like kind of abstracted that away from how they think about it in the day to day. So that it's all like I get the sense that it's like an almost like an addiction. Basically, you could use the word addiction to be like they're trying to there's something about that particular problem is so interesting to them specifically that they're just going to finish it. I think that's I think that's one part of it. Definitely. I think that there's also like um, I think a lot of really good mathematicians are attracted to math for the same reason that um, that people are attracted to art. Like it's um, there's like an intrinsic beauty to it because you're you're basically like building these these structures that are like um, that are like intrinsically perfect in some way. Mm. And um, if you're you know a great mathematician, you can start to like see these things and get a, and uh, and and get a feel for them in your head. And you know most people. Um, never try to do that. But I think for people that, that get that far, that's a big part of what keeps them going as well. And so I have an experience of that. I have an experience of it for things that are uh, related to the body. So with the way that the body works, I learned the science of, of the way the body works and then I can have a visualization of it, which no one else can like, I'm like, I'm discovering things that like no one, I'll, I can't talk about these things with, well, I can talk about it with some people, other body workers, other people yeah. like that, but it's like something very, very abstract and it's a picture in my head. It's an actual visualization in my head of like how it works mixed with vocabulary and words. Um, do you get that ex experience or was that only with the, the mathematicians or what, what do you get it with? Yeah. Yeah, I think I definitely like I definitely had that with a lot of you know when I, back when I was doing more like mm -hmm. uh, more intense math. Mm -hmm. um, like I think um, I don't. Know, I think actually I think that's like why um, you know most you know at least the majority of mathematicians are such bad teachers because it's like <laughs> you know they, it's, can't, they can't describe it. Yeah, you, it's um, one of the really interesting things about math, and I think this is true of other things as well. Is like you get to the point where you understand it so well that you forget what it was that made it hard to learn in the first place. Mm -hmm. yep. Um, I, I mean, I imagine it's, that's true for a lot of other fields as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a, it's a really cool feeling to be able to just kind of like manipulate this abstract object in your mind mm -hmm. and like be able to sort of get an intuition for the implications of things that you might change and, um, and things like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And then what do you, what do you get? How do you, uh, do you get that with AI? Um, to an extent, uh -huh. yeah. What what are what have you worked on, or what are you? I know you said you are working on something now that you're not talking about publicly. Um, in the in the in the past, what was it about artificial intelligence? And I'm not technical at all. I mean, I can I can understand a lot of things, but yeah. Uh, and neither is my audience. So some some of them maybe are, but <laughs> what what it is it that you worked on in AI that you were able to manipulate in that abstract way? Yeah, I think. Um I guess the place where it's dissimilar is that 
um, for me, like deep learning is primarily an empirical science, uh-huh. right? And so it's, um, you know, you can have intuitions about why things work or, you know, what things would or wouldn't work, but ultimately, um, you know, you never really know until you go and try stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. like the best researchers that I know, um, one of the things they have in common is that they're just really fast at, um, at trying a bunch of things because, you know, even if you're really, really good, your hit rate is like pretty low. So you have to try a bunch of stuff. Um, I do think that, I mean, but I think if it was like purely empirical, then, um, you know, then everyone would be on more, like more or less a level playing field, but that's- Because you just have to brute force it basically. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's like whoever can try the most things the fastest yeah. would be the best researcher. But that's uh, also, interesting. Yeah. that also doesn't seem to be true. Like yeah. there, um, uh, there, there are certain people in the field like, um, uh, like Ilya, the chief scientist at OpenAI, who just have like a incredibly high hit rate for mm-hmm. high impact ideas. Mm-hmm. So there must be like something that they understand about this that I don't understand. Well, I've got some thoughts on that. Yeah. Uh, what so, are your thoughts on that? Yeah. It's there. So I would call that inspiration. Yeah. The, and it, I get, I get in a similar way in terms of when I'm facing the Google search bar, uh, because mm-hmm. you know, there are these terms that we can use. If you get the right term, you can unlock the key. But the question is, how do you get the right term? Yeah. And the right term, I've started to come to an understanding of that. And that's like, how versed you are in the language. So I've been learning the language of biology and I can I can use these like a, I've been memorizing this this vocabulary like a cytokine cell. Mm-hmm. And that cytokine cell matched with another random word uh, could lead me down this random pathway yeah. that like no one else is going down. That might be noise to me or it might be signal to me. Yeah. Um, but then there's another component which is like, I don't know where my ideas come from. Most people who you ask don't have this understanding of where the actual idea comes mm-hmm. from. Uh, and I because of my bias towards spirituality or whatever would say that that is like, I don't know, go out and say it, like God, it's God mm-hmm. basically. And, and the more connection you have with the divine, the more connection you have with the, this kind of like um, spirit, uh, the more likely that is to happen. And the more mm-hmm. that you've come into alignment with what you are, uh, more that you come into alignment with what is being asked of you, the more quickly those things come. So is, is a, another way of thinking about that, like if you have um, if you have a sense of purpose with what you're trying to do, then it's easier to get inspiration? I would say yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that, that's hard to prove. <laughs> Definitely hard to prove. Yeah, I'm trying to think whether it like empirically rings true to me. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think a sense of like, I think the relationship between purpose and like productivity is really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely feel like I have times when I'm just feeling really, really motivated by something when I feel like it's really important. And then it becomes easy to have like new ideas sort of flow um, from that. And it's easy to motivate myself to like, to, you know, to see them through. Um, but I don't think that's always the case. Like, I think sometimes I'm more motivated by like, you know, deadlines or fear uh-huh. or interesting, um, yeah. or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think, yeah, I think inspiration can come from a lot of different places. Totally. And there, there's no denying that the deadline and the fear and the economics of it and the pure, just like material nature of that we're here on the planet and like we need to work and do all this different stuff. Like there's no denying that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, how much are you motivated right now by those things? Cause you, you were at a, you know, in an organization. Now you're not in an organization. Yeah. How does that feel? Yeah, I think um, I think like one of the 
so it doesn't feel as different maybe as you might expect. Mm -hmm. I think one of the um, the great things about working at OpenAI for me was that I often felt like those two things were aligned. Like I was, you know, I was sort of working on the stuff that I found, you know, to be most interesting and most important at the time, um, which is a really good place to be in. Um, and um, yeah, I think the thing that I'm trying to sort out now is more like, um, you know, what it what exactly should the like the guiding light for the next, you know, phase of what I do, what should that look like? Mm, interesting. I would say that that is the question of like, what is your North Star? Yeah. Would that being an accurate I thing? I think so, yeah. yeah. And that, for me, that changes. It's like a target, but it's like a vague target. So it's like it changes from day to day slightly. I mean, I'm going, I'm moving towards something. I don't know what it is yet and I don't, can't articulate it yet. Mm -hmm. um, in the past, how have you figured that out? I think I, so I, I think like I, I'm a big believer in the importance of sort of um, making decisions and then moving on. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've definitely had times in my life when I've felt, you know, really indecisive about, uh, you know, for example, like when I was starting grad school, there are all these different kind of interesting paths that I thought I could go down. Um, and, you know, um, applying math to biology seemed really interesting. Um, applying, you know, uh, doing more like computational modeling seemed really interesting. And, um, but I, I think that like the universe rewards conviction. And so I think um, when you get to the point where you're like more certain about one thing than other things, if you can get yourself to sort of make a, make an internal commitment to that um, and really believe that and move forward with that for at least some period of time, I think that um, that can make a big difference in the amount of, um, in sort of how fast you're able to move with it. Mm. And obstacles arise in that, in, that, in that path. There are obstacles that happen, but with, when you have that conviction, then the obstacles are easier to, like what we were talking about earlier with that kind of math type of abstract concept of like breaking it down, like then obstacles kind of like are less of an obstacle basically. Yeah, I think to a certain extent, but I mean, I think for me it's like, the reason why it's important is that um, I feel like a lot of people, um, uh, kind of get stuck in this mindset that they're, you know, they don't know exactly what they want. And so they want to do things that like maximize their optionality. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, like one thing I believe is that optionality is sort of a false choice. Yeah. Um, like I think if you're taking actions to maximize your optionality, then, you know, no matter what you do, you're specializing in something. Um, and so if you're always kind of thinking about being as well suited to everything as you can be, then the only then the thing that you're specializing in is you know, uh, like whatever whatever it is that is allowing you to apply your skills to such a uh, wide range of things. Um, Interesting. And so I think you know for most people like um, making making a commitment to a path um, earlier than is comfortable is valuable. Mm. So this is interesting because this is actually I I would say I disagree with that in part, because I do recognize that specialization, specialization is very, very important for some people. Uh, we wouldn't get this type of math. We wouldn't get this like kind of, uh, you know, really deep, deep specialty that has taken us forward in various ways. At the same time, there is a role that some people need to play in not specializing and being a generalist. Um, this is something I, I, because the our economic system highly rewards somebody who specializes. Um, it does not reward 
in the same way somebody who generalizes. Although there are VCs who are generalists and there are uh, founders, I think, founding, if you're going to found something, I think it, that, I think it's a generalist specialist thing. Creative people are very, very good. You, if you're doing art or anything like that, then you need to essentially be a generalist, but at the same time, you also need to specialize in your medium as well. So it's like, but then to, but you get more kind of uh, sources of inspiration if you are a generalist, I believe. Yeah, I think, um, I don't think that everyone needs to be a specialist. Uh -huh. um, I, I do like, for example, really believe in the value of starting over. Um, I think that's, I think starting over is like super underrated. Um, but, um, and so I think, you know, people can, can do a wide variety of things in their life. Um, but I think like one thing that I've seen um, kind of paralyze people is sort of this illusion that, you know, they're choosing among like one among four paths. And so you, you wait until you make, you wait to make the decision until you have um, until you feel like you're ready, but in fact, you're not actually getting more information that will help you make the decision better. Yeah, you're. Yeah, that's just too abstract, and like, like it's it's a it's like it's not it's not realistic. There's like reality is nonlinear. It's too nonlinear for the, to say like these are my four different paths or something like that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I think you know to make it more concrete, like um, I would between college and grad school, I worked in management consulting, and mm -hmm. kind of the like the reason why. Um, the reason why I went into it and the reason why I think most people go into it is because, um, you know, it's like the classic thing to do if you don't know what you want to do when you grow up, mm. um, because you get exposed to all of these different industries and, mm. um, you learn what's kind of like a general skill set. Um, but I think the thing that I've noticed at least so far with my peer set is that like, um, people who kind of took that experience and then applied it to something really concrete, um, are, were able to like to use it to do things that are really interesting. Mm -hmm. But um, a lot of people, you know, I think uh, stuck with this idea of not knowing what they want to be when they grew up and, um, you know, stayed in consulting or went into private equity and then are like kind of now realizing that that's not mm -hmm. what they're most excited about. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's... it's uh, The path was chosen for them, basically. The, the path was chosen for them yeah. by the path of like maximum optionality. Uh, <laughs> interesting, because an optionality there being money, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's also this perception in consulting, I think, that it's like you're building a general skill set that you can apply to any problem. Uh, um, oh, interesting. I think some people kind of view private equity in a similar way. Uh -huh. um, you know, the, a general skill set that you can apply anywhere in finance. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't think either of those things is really true. Okay, yeah. And it, it, um, it also probably applies to the individual as well. And Definitely. And, yeah, a lot of contextual stuff there. So I'd love to move into now uh, about AI and because yeah. I'm really, really excited about it as a complete novice who knows nothing about sure. it. Except the funny thing that I've been noticing recently, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, is that uh, people are starting to use AI, particularly dot AI, as like a catch-all for like uh, technology that will um, totally change your life. Huh. Uh, and so I've been seeing it. There's this one Facebook group that I think might be the first version of a cult that is totally online. Uh, <laughs> it's called immortality.ai. Oh, I, I that's that's I interesting. didn't mean to actually say it, but uh, there it is. Uh, so, uh, so it's out on the internet. Now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Yeah. Can't stop it. Yeah. And, uh, and so I've been seeing it in other places as well. And, and I think we're going to start to see some cults out in the desert that are, that are, that are like, um, started based off of the divine, uh, uh, their view that the that AI is some sort of divine god or something like that. Why do you think people feel that way? Because it's if you hear, hear Sam Harris talk about it, you hear 
um, even Elon Musk talk about it. You hear all these guys talk about it. Like they're all like, "This is going to totally change your fucking life." Like, and and it's going to happen soon. It might look like an apocalypse, or it m- might look like a paradise. And so they're saying this stuff, and then normal normal people who are like, "Oh, who's that Elon Musk guy?" Like, I know nothing about technology, but he's saying that AI is, and so that's seeping in that way. Um, and then the, you know, it's like just the last 15 years of our, our collective lives have been upended by technology, and so people all over the world are starting to be like, "Okay, what is what is this thing that's 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 changing our lives? How is it going to impact our life?" Yeah. And then AI is like, "That's the thing that's going to change your life." Yeah. Do is it is it? Do you think it's really just AI, or do you think that most transform like technologies that have the potential to be that transformative also have similar effects on people? Yes, absolutely. But I think AI has the best branding, mm-hmm. or the most the most uh, the most specific and like you know clear branding, basically. Yeah. Well, I guess people are like the most uh, optimistically vague about <laughs> what it's going to end up being able to do, and so it's easiest to like draw, you mm-hmm. know, extrapolate and draw your own conclusions about it that way. And I guess it's also media too, because you had Terminator, Terminator. You True. Know, the, yeah. The, the, the I was talking about it with somebody else on this on this podcast, which was like. Oh yeah, it's Mike Solano from Founders Fund, and he was saying that um, that AI that all since like the 1960s, since nuclear weapons, science fiction has gone particularly dark. There haven't been many like positive yeah. incarnations of science fiction, mm-hmm. and, at least here. And we were, we actually asked about the question in China, like whether that it's, whether that exists in their in their media, whether it's always dark or whether it's popular as well, or whether it's positive. Um, so that's another thing. It's like the media has portrayed it as dark as well. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. I would love to see some uh, some science fiction with positive portrayals of an AI future. Interesting. I think. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe popular. Maybe optimistic sci-fi just doesn't really sell in general. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. So and so. Okay. So let's get it really clear for the audience. So what what is AI? What is the current state of AI right now in terms of like really like. What are, is it neural networks? Is it machine learning? What are the difference between those two things? Yeah, so I think um, one, of the, one of the hard things about pinning down AI is that uh, as, as the capabilities of computers change, um, people's, you know, the, the goalposts kind of start to move. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, um, like one of the first really big milestones for AI was Deep Blue beating Gary Kasparov in 1997. Um, and you know the way that worked is it's basically just a massive search um, down like the, the the game tree of chess, um, and so it's powered by like you know what at the time was a lot of computing power. Now it could probably run on your phone, mm. um, but you know essentially just a brute force approach. And so at the time that was like artificial intelligence, and now I think a lot of people wouldn't consider that to be. Um, but I think you know right now when people talk about being excited about AI, mostly what they're excited about is um, this sort of subset of AI, um, which is machine learning. Um, and so machine learning is basically just um, systems that can um, figure out how to solve tasks based on looking, you know, only looking at data. So without humans needing to write the rules for how to solve the task. Um, so if you have a data set that has a bunch of examples of something and then um, has some labels as to like what the correct answer is, um, then you know, then machine learning systems can figure out how to take a new input and then map it to what it thinks the label should be. Interesting. So you give the, it's gone from specifying the actual lower level task to specifying the label. Yeah. So it's like, um, you know, I think, um, 
I think Andre Carpathia has a pretty good description of this. Um, he, he calls this software 2.0. And so the idea is that, um, you know, software 1.0, like traditional software, um, you know, the way it works is like you have some goal that you want your system to achieve. And then a programmer sits down and they write some rules where, you know, if the system, like when the mm -hmm. system follows those rules, it'll achieve the goal. Mm. Um, the um, software 2.0, the, the distinction is that like programmers in the software 2.0 paradigm program with data sets. Mm. Um, and so basically you, um, in software 2.0, you have a data set which consists of, you know, some data, maybe that data has labels, it doesn't need to. Um, and then um, the, and then you run some optimization algorithm that figures out the rules on its own for how to achieve the end goal. Mm. Interesting. So you got you're playing with data sets and then optimize, optimization um, algorithms. And what are people optimizing for? Well, that's the that's the great thing. Is you can <laughs> optimize for you know more or less whatever you want. Well, that's not really true, but um, you can optimize for a lot. Okay. Um, so you know I think the like the most common type of machine learning system in use right now is um, supervised learning. And so the way that that works is you have um, a bunch of um, input-output examples, mm. right? So you have some examples of what the system should do if it's working really well. Um, and if you have enough of those examples, then the computer can figure out the rules that will allow it to um, produce those types of examples when it sees some new data. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of one example of how you might specify the objective for the program. Interesting. And then we, what, is, what are your thoughts on unsupervised learning? Does yeah. that exist or...? <laughs> Um, it does exist. Yeah. I think um, actually, like I think, unsupervised learning is kind of one of the most exciting areas to watch over the next five years. Uh -huh. um, I think if you saw the um, some of the kind of really powerful um, results in language modeling recently, um, like OpenAI's GPT two is one example of that, um, where they can kind of generate you know reasonably coherent paragraphs of texts that are like at least plausible that maybe a human would have written them. Interesting. Um, that's an yeah, example that of the technology that they were scared about releasing. Or that is, okay, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's an example of uh, of what I think most people would consider an unsupervised learning system. Mm -hmm. um, although a better name for that might be um, self-supervised learning, because it's it's actually um, it's using like the data itself as a label because it's predicting the next character. Interesting. And in that unsupervised learning, um, what is is it that still that same type of Thing that they're using data sets, data sets, and um, and it uh, the what was the word um, labels or optimization optimization algorithms. yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and so the the distinction is that like the the um, the objective that you have for the optimization algorithm is different mm -hmm. um, because in unsupervised learning you don't have labels mm -hmm. um, and so instead of the instead of the system needing to um, predict you know, uh, given an input, predict what the label should be. Um, instead, they're trying to learn some intrinsic structure of the data set itself. Oh, interesting. And pick out the pick out the insights from that itself. Uh, all right. So that's interesting. All right. Besides unsupervised learning and supervised learning, is there anything else that's really interesting right now? Yeah, there's also reinforcement learning, okay. um, which um, has also, I think, been behind some of the most exciting results of the past few years. Mm -hmm. um, so reinforcement learning is when you have an agent um, and that agent has to make decisions about how it acts in, um, in an, envi an environment um, based on the feedback that it's getting from the environment. So based on 
you know, its observations. So, you know, what it sees or what it experiences and then um, some form of reward signal, um, which mm-hmm. the reward signal is basically telling the agent whether it's on the right track or not. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so reinforcement learning is kind of, you know, the main application that people think about when they think about reinforcement learning is robotics. And, um, but it's, it's also kind of behind some of the exciting results recently in gameplay. Um, so like uh, the, um, you know, DeepMind's result of beating the best human players in Go, mm. that's, you know, fundamentally a reinforcement learning system. Or um, similarly with OpenAI's uh, result of beating people in Dota. Uh-huh. What was that? People in Dota? Dota. What's yeah. that? Is that a game? Or? Yeah, Dota is like an esports game. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so that, that's also self-driving cars, right? Um, so in principle, yes. Okay. Like if you were going to like, you know, design like um, an abstract, you know, like if you're going to design a, a self-driving car um, in like an idealized setting, then like reinforcement learning is probably how you'd solve that problem. But mm. in practice, um, very few of the self-driving car companies are using reinforcement learning, except like maybe around the edges. Um, because, because it's not an idealized setting because there's so many... Yeah, exactly. Stuff that happens mm-hmm. on the road. Yeah, reinforcement learning is really powerful, but it's very brittle and it's uh, um, very data hungry. Interesting. And so, you know, if, if you, uh, it's it's dangerous to have a system that, you know, is safety critical and also relies on reinforcement learning. Mm. So, what are they learning, or what are, what are they using for self-driving cars? Yeah. So, the um, my understanding of the way that most of the stacks work is they have kind of a separate perception module mm-hmm. and then a control module that lives on top of that. And so, you can think of the perception module as like kind of um, taking sort of all of the raw inputs from the car, so the camera data, the lidar data, um, and then turning that into an understanding of the world that um, you know humans can interpret, um, and also like the planning algorithms can interpret. And so, this would be things like you know, what, um, what objects are in my field of view, how far away are they, um, how fast are they moving, um, or even things like, even more abstract things like, how likely are they to, um, you know, to cut into my lane. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh-huh. the, the planning module kind of takes those as inputs and then um, decides kind of what actions to take with the car. So, you know, should I accelerate, should I brake, should I turn left, should I turn right? Um, and you know the the advantage of splitting things up that way is that it makes it way easier to audit, right? So if um, if the car takes the wrong action, then you can you can go back and you can trace that back to the output of the perception system, and you can say like, okay, um, was the output of the perception system correct, or was that actually broken? Mm-hmm. And if it was broken, you can go back and fix the perception system. But if that was correct, then you know you know that the planning system like took the correct inputs and had the correct outputs, and so then you can go work on um, uh, fixing the planning system. Hmm. Is there any other component in that stack that is missing right now? Like, what? Why? Could, why did? Why were self-driving cars so hyped, and then all of a sudden the, it's died down? Why aren't they working? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I should caveat all, all this by saying like I'm not, not I'm not an expert in self-driving cars, <laughs> uh-huh. but um, it is something I'm interested in, and uh-huh. I've talked to a bunch of people in this space. Um, but uh, yeah, I, who, who who are some experts that I should talk to? In self-driving cars, yeah. Um, yeah, you should talk to. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like any any of the folks that are kind of at um, Uber or Lyft or um, Tesla or, um, or Waymo or, yeah. 
or cruise, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. um, would be good to talk to. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, Andre Carpathy would definitely be someone who is like very insightful and also has like contrarian views on this. So oh. <laughs> be an cool. interesting person to talk to. All right. Yeah, I'll take, check him out. Um, and so as a non-expert, what, what is your view on, on why self-driving cars uh, don't, don't work? Or oh, yeah. are working as well? Um, I, I think that like, so I think that one of the challenges is that um, you very quickly get into a long tail. Um, mm. And so I think, you know, if, if um, like if your goal is to make a car that drives sort of on a highway in normal conditions, um, yeah. it's not, I mean, it's challenging, but it's not like really that challenging. Like you, I think, um, I think, you know, there have been demonstrations of systems that could do sort of relatively good highway driving under normal conditions since, you know, since like I think the 90s actually. Mm. Um, and so, you know, what, what makes it like, what makes it difficult to go beyond that? It's really like the complexity that's inherent in the world. And so if you think about like all the crazy stuff that can happen um, when you're driving a car, I mean, you can have, you know, someone can run out in front of you. Um, you can have like crazy light lighting that's caused by, um, you know, uh, like double rainbows and mm. rain and, you know, all this like weird stuff that can happen in your field of view. You can have, um, you know, people behaving erratically. You can have, um, you know, kangaroos on the side of the road. <laughs> like basically anything that you can imagine, like probably is, happens at some point on the road. I wonder, um, I wonder which ones are those are the biggest sources. I mean, is it human beings? Because human beings can be very unpredictable or is it nature, you know, and human beings being a subset of nature. But I wonder what, what it is, like which one is those bigger, is bigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting to know that. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the challenge is that like you, um, the rarer an event becomes, the harder it is to like to mm-hmm. solve in this like machine nice learning yeah. paradigm. Mm-hmm. Because um, you know, if you have like, if you find out that your car is, um, you know, has a lot of trouble with like left turns in the rain um, when you know uh, when someone is crossing the street carrying a yellow umbrella, um, then it's like okay, one in how many like how many millions of driving miles does it take for you to find another example of that, uh, right? And so then. Um, you know, if you're if you're operating under a learning paradigm where like you're, tr- you're a lot of um, how how you're building your system is through machine learning, then you need like way more examples of things than that. Um, and so I think that's one big part of the problem. So edge cases, and I was re- I read the title of an article, but didn't read the article, which yeah. was the uh, that why the ethics of AI of self-driving cars are going to hold us back uh, as opposed mm-hmm. to China. Um, and so this is going into a wild uh, speculation here, but um, China doesn't have the same ethical implications that we do when it comes to technology and testing out this technology. Add that to the fact that they've got a closed internet system and that they're selling that technology to other countries. This is going to become a huge national um, uh, advantage for China that they'll be able to not only build this technology but then also hold on to the 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 results of that technology as well and then use it for profit. Yeah, it seems plausible to me. I mean, I think um, one thing that is another thing that's really challenging about self-driving cars is like um, here is that people don't even know um, it's it's not only that the standards are high, um, but it's that people don't even know what the standards are right now. And so if you, um, you know, if you design a system that you think is good enough to be out on the roads, you know, and, and if you're safety conscious and you really care about, um, you know, uh, being very careful not to put something on the roads that's dangerous, 
you know, whether that's because you have ethical reasons to do it or because you don't want to attract the attention of the regulators, <laughs> um, you, it, it's, it's very hard to say, like, it's very hard to write tests for, uh, right? Like, how do, you, how do you prove to yourself that it's good enough to yeah. handle real-world settings, right? I mean, you can look at, um, you know, you can, you can look at all of your past, like, your examples of, uh, of, of log data of driving in the past, um, and you can say, like, okay, looks like we perform well on all of those. Um, but how do you know, like, how, how do you know that that, um, the data you've already collected should give you confidence about the data that you're going to see going forward? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's like a very fundamentally difficult problem and I'm not sure that anyone really has a good answer to it yet. And I, I, and I, I don't think anybody does either. And I, this reminds me of the work of uh, Nicholas uh, Nassim Taleb and Black mm-hmm. Swan is in, um, Fooled by Randomness that, that uh, nobody knows this, but a lot of people pretend to know this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, right. uh, and then uh, that gets us into trouble because uh, we tend to believe authorities. And uh, and so um, I want to add one piece. And the authority happens to be whoever is speaking, um, which is a really interesting thing because if you just start speaking, people tend to view you as an authority. Um, interesting. Which is a, a really weird thing. I don't, what do, you, do you think that that's an accurate claim? Yeah, um, I can get my reasoning on it. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear your reasoning. I mean, I, I'm just I'm thinking like, um, it does seem to be an advantage in 2019 to like be really active on Twitter, yeah. for example. So that would be <laughs> evidence for uh, for what I'm saying. Yeah. So the so I believe it's because in our tribal society. Actually, I have no idea. Okay, so so I I think whoever just kind of talks we just listen partly because of i'm learning this from robert sapolsky is that we have the amygdala and then we have the outside center the outside of the amygdala and the inside of the amygdala that comes with pre-planned fears so we're Mm -hmm. afraid of snakes we're afraid of spiders we're afraid of death we're afraid of all these those things come in there um but then that outside amygdala is where we learn and uh, we learn fears we learn how to be fearful and a baby is not afraid of other people. A baby kind of accepts that totally. Um, and we have to learn over time, either through our parents or through some sort of other, how, what to fear and what not to fear. And um, and what to distrust and what not to distrust. And I think a lot of people haven't learned how to, to tune that distrust mechanism. And so like anybody who's speaking, if they're speaking confidently, I've been, I've been geeking out on these videos, uh, CoffeeZilla, uh, on YouTube, uh, he goes and finds, finds the financial gurus who, who post on YouTube and yeah. like post their courses and stuff like that. And, uh, and uh, he goes into detail and then takes them down basically, like shows how it's fake and everything like that. Yeah. And it's brilliant, it's, it's, it's really fun. I'm actually gonna have him on the show. Cool. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so it's, it's, he's breaking it down for me and I'm like seeing this, like, and it's just these people who act very confidently and right. say things very confidently. Um, and any, anyone can learn to do that. And please, if you're listening right now, don't just learn how to do it. Learn the ethics of, because ultimately I think it, 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 ethics are there for a reason. And long term, it makes sense to be ethical because if you fake something, you will get found out. Yeah. Especially now. Um, yeah, it's not a very robust strategy, right? Yeah. You can get away with it for a while, but then once people realize that you're all bluster, then it's mm-hmm. pretty much the end. Um, yeah, I wonder if it has something to do with... Um, I mean, I feel like most people, most of the time, um, are not very confident in their beliefs and they're kind of afraid to be, um, you know, I think it's kind of a natural feeling to be like afraid of being wrong or afraid of being in the minority about something. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
And so if the loudest voices are, um, are saying something and you're not hearing voices on the other side, then I think that sort of biases people to believe the things that um, the loudest voices are saying. It's kind of like the, um, um, yeah, the, I think, you know, but e- even if that's not fundamentally what they believe. I agree, and that is, that's something else I learned from Sapolsky is that if you say something that the rest of the crowd, they tested brain images, um, if you say something that the rest of the crowd doesn't agree with, uh, there is amygdala activation. So you, <laughs> everyone is fearful unless they're a psychopath and then they don't experience fear. Um, and so, so, so everyone's afraid of going against the group. Uh, and so it essentially, I, I've learned that it takes exposure therapy and this might come back to bite me in the ass. This whole show might come to back to bite me in the ass because I'm just like sprouting whatever speculations I have sure. in the moment. And it might, uh, so we'll see. But, um, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, there's amygdala activation. Oh, yeah, and there's some. Oh, yeah, what are the implications of this for AI? And um, let's go into deepfakes. How big of a problem are deepfakes? Um, yeah, I think. So I, I don't know. I mean, I think um, people talk a lot about how big a problem they are. Um, I think there are obvious examples of where they've been a big problem um, so far. But I think that you know the. Um, I think kind of people are waiting for. Um, you know, a, a deep fake to have to have like broad societal implications, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the fear that everyone has. And um, I don't know. I mean, to me, they're like to me, it's like probably the technology is good enough to do that now. Um, so you have to wonder like why it hasn't happened yet. And also, it's like the times that it has happened, it's only been when somebody's been like, "This is a deep fake. Look at what deep fakes can do." But yeah. there haven't been any like. Oh, we found out about this deep fake that's been going on for six months or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm not like, I'm definitely not trying to minimize the problem. It's something that I'm scared of, uh-huh. but like, uh, I'm just curious why, you know, if, if researchers can produce like really good examples of, um, you know, very convincing deep fakes, um, then like, why hasn't it been weaponized yet? I mean, I wonder if, um, maybe it's really not as easy as, um, mm-hmm. as it seems right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you see that a lot with sort of these, like, um, I think you're incentivized to produce really cool looking demos when you do when you do like sort of um, uh, technical research. Um, and oftentimes like there are a lot of corners that are being cut to create those demos. And so it's not actually a general purpose technology that you know anyone can just deploy. So that's one possible reason. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe it's just they're not quite good enough yet. Like maybe it's just maybe it's that um, it is possible to for someone who's discerning to really see that it's a deep fake and maybe, you know, maybe like our filtering mechanisms are actually working better than we think they are. And to me, it seems like an extension of what we were just talking about of, of there is already this deep fake that each person can do if they're confident enough. Um, that's why they call them con men, you know? Yeah. But I think deep fakes can do something much more powerful than that. Right. It's Which like is like something to that. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you make someone who already has authority say something really yeah. confidently, then that's you know. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. 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 But I mean, yeah, with all like with with all the fake news and the you know the um, the talk of fake news, it's it it feels like at some point we're going to have a deep fake that has broader implications, and um, yeah, it's pretty scary. Mm. Um, thank you for giving that clarification. Uh, so, in is what Facebook and what Twitter are doing? Are they machine learning companies now? Um. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure what it means to be a machine learning company. Mm-hmm. 
They're definitely doing a lot of machine learning. Okay. They, I think they all call themselves machine learning companies now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so one one thing that Kai Fu Lee talks about in his book called AI Superpowers is that um, they're becoming that Facebook, Twitter are all becoming machine learning companies, and that they're the ones who are going to go like shoot up because mm-hmm. they're they have a have such a, a moat of of machine learning, and then that's going to become a battle versus China as well. But is it is the moat like the talent that they've amassed or the data that they've amassed or like the you know core capabilities that they've built like the systems that they built uh-huh. um, do you think, uh, I don't know I mean yeah. um yeah having having not read the book I'm not sure I mean I think no, but like that question of like is it the talent or is it the is it the um is it the da- data sets what do you think I think in the long run um the data is going to be much more important uh yeah mm-hmm. but um Right now, I think there's a, a huge um, talent shortage in machine uh-huh. learning, mm-hmm. and I think that the, a massive concentration of like the best people in the field are at a very small number of places. Um, and so I think it's it's very possible that like in the short in the short run, that advantage is going to be um, hard to overcome. Interesting. What about open source and the nature of open source AI? What is being done in AI in terms of open source stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of a lot of stuff is open source. I mean, I think even even sort of the big companies are doing, are open sourcing a lot of the mm-hmm. research that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge is that, you know, to mm-hmm. uh, like, like Google is not going to open source their entire They're gonna leave corpus some, of, yeah. of data, right? Like, yeah. and so ultimately, um, even if they open source the algorithms that they create, and even if they open source like the the model that's trained on a smaller publicly available data set, you still can't do exactly what they did because um, you don't have the data. You don't have the, mm-hmm. uh, the data. And uh-huh. increasingly also because you don't have the compute. Oh yeah, that's a big, big one as well. And that's really interesting. So we're gonna get the slivers. So the slivers of these, of these, of these technologies are gonna be uh, trickled down to, uh, to the rest of everyone else. But, but the, the main core competencies and the main kind of like insights will remain within these corporate? Well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think um, a lot of, you know, I think a lot of what Google is trying to do with all the data that they have is, um, I mean, a lot of it is like targeting ads, right? But, um, a lot, you know, aside from that, a lot of it is building products. Um, that you know, they open. Or, that that um, they, yeah, that they, you know, provide as an API or they let people, like, give people some sort of access to. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, in, in that sense, you know, that people people have the benefit of the technology that they're building. I just think it's like um, it will become increasingly difficult to compete with Google if you want to do something similar to what they're doing with the data sets that they have mm-hmm. amassed. Yep. Interesting. So the the there's I love the software one. 1.0 software 2.0 and then like this this question of like talent how much where the talent is um, and then this compute power question is also really interesting like yeah. who and now that's I mean I mean that's essentially AWS right AWS is winning because of that well I don't know about that uh-huh. I mean I think um, I don't actually know who has the most um, like machine learning focused compute available it might be Google Interesting, because it's not only it's not only compute total compute; it's also compute that is dedicated to machine learning as well. Well, it's like so. I mean, the the main um, 
you know, the like the most of the work in machine learning is being done on um, GPUs or increasingly like these like machine learning specific um, chips like uh-huh. TPUs that Google has. And so like um, most of the like flops available for machine learning are in are in the form of like those types of um, accelerators. Mm. And so like yeah, I, I don't know the numbers. I mean, but it's it's plausible that like. Um, you know, AWS is mostly built out for like um, web hosting stuff, and so mm. it's possible they have like more CPUs, and Google has more GPUs. And oh, TPUs. interesting. Not sure. Well, that gives me a good idea of a business idea of doing AWS, but for speci- specified for uh, those chips that you were just talking about. Yeah, I mean, so the, the chips like are available on AWS, and they're available uh, okay. on Google too. So, um, yeah. But there are also like machine learning specific clouds. Um, mm. I think. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, I forget the, the name of the one that. That people use and like, huh. um, yeah. But there are there are some that are like more tailored towards machine learning use cases. And and so what is the in the cryptocurrency mining? What's that chip? Um, I think that's some sort some sort of ASIC. Okay. Yeah. And is that I'm not sure? Can that be? Do you know whether that can be dedicated to machine learning at all? I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure whether like the ASIC manufacturers are really. I mean, I've got to imagine that they're probably thinking about how to make machine learning specific chips, mm-hmm. but um. Uh, yeah, I'm just I don't I don't know mm-hmm. where they are with that because yeah, that's the random question that spurred to my mind because there's now huge financial incentive to get those chips really much better and I'm wondering what is the what is the connection? But yeah, I mean there's there's kind of an arms race going on right now for machine learning specific chips, right? Mm-hmm. So Google is kind of I think was pro- I think the first to come to market with their um, TPUs tensor processing units and they're you know um, gradually improving those. There are a few startups that are relatively far along in making their own versions that mm-hmm. have different technical trade-offs, um, and um, you know I think Tesla is working on uh, is working on one. Um, hmm. Nvidia, um, I'm not sure. I mean, they you know they kind of dominate the market right now with GPUs, mm. um, and then I've heard the argument that eventually the um, the companies that are working on um, cryptocurrency specific um, ASICs are eventually going to move into the space and move really fast because they mm. have figured out how to iterate really quickly on chip development, which is uh, kind of like one of the biggest challenges. How related to what we're talking about is Moore's Law? Is, does Moore's Law have anything to do with these? This, is, this sounds like specified chip things for different purposes. Is that within the case of Moore's Law? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's very related, right? So I think... Um, uh, the, um, I think Moore's Law is about sort of um, general purpose computation. Mm-hmm. And so as you know, Moore's Law continues or doesn't continue depending on who you're talking to, <laughs> um, like machine learning um, workloads will see the benefit of that. Uh-huh. But um, one of the advantages of running things as machine learning systems rather than traditional code is that the number like the number of unique types of operations that you do in machine learning is very small. Um, like pretty much everything, every operation in machine learning is like um, is like some form of matrix multiplication. Mm-hmm. And so the advantage that it gives you is that you can design much more specialized chips that um, that you know since they don't have to do all this other stuff, they can be really really good and really fast at doing this really small set of operations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that you'll see, um, like I think over the next five or ten years, we'll see um, 
like one or two orders of magnitude mm -hmm. speed up for machine learning workloads specifically that doesn't trickle back down to the rest of the it just gets more and more specialized it's almost like us uh, going back to our starting point of like like humans for that as well it's like we're a lot of people are starting to specialize in these little things as well yeah um well okay so so for the last like five minutes or so I'd love to hear what your opinion on uh, about the nature of work and uh, whether humans are going to be out. Of, most humans are going to be out of jobs, or whether we'll be able to find uh, yeah. find uh, mm -hmm. find meaning and purpose and potentially work that's unlocked through AI. Yeah, I mean, I think um, to to preface this, I'm not a um, I'm not an AGI optimist. Uh -huh. So, like, I don't um, you know I don't know how long it's going to take us to build computers that are better than everything than we are, but um, I think it's unlikely we'll do it in the next 20 years. So, um, you know, I think there's a separate question around like what happens to humanity once we have AGI. Um, but for me, like the more interesting question is um, what is the implication for the future of work of, um, of narrow AI, like the mm -hmm. types of systems that people are building now. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there, there are different viewpoints on this. I tend to fall in the camp that, um, you know, ultimately I think, uh, so, so a couple things. One is, um, I think that most of the the impact that AI is going to have in the near term is going to be in um, sort of um, uh, like intelligence augmentation, mm -hmm. not automation. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason for that is that um, <laughs> um, the reason for that is that um, like I think the the requirement of need, having something that needs to work all the time is sort of like one of the, I mean, like, like we were talking about in self-driving cars, right? Like um, my view is that like every time you add an additional nine to your accuracy requirement, so like moving from 99.9 .9 to 99.99% accuracy, um, it's like, you know, often like a factor of 10 increase in how much the project is going to cost. Mm -hmm. And so like the set of things where it's going to, you know, where it's really going to be cost effective to fully automate them, um, in the near term, I think is going to be relatively small. Um, over the long term, I think a lot of those things will become fully automated. But the 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 type of um, of AI that I'm really optimistic about changing the way that we work in the near term is um, is intelligence augmentation. So like systems where you know they're taking a lot of the you know they're they're taking like a high level task that someone does like I don't know like sales or um, uh, you know or or writing or art. And they're not totally automating it, right? They're, they're not replacing the human judgment and they're not replacing like the empathy and- They're going um, task by task by task and automating all those things that can be automated out of Yeah, and, and maybe not even like fully automating, right? Mm -hmm. like, oh, to, to, like to start, I think a lot of it is like you do something that does, um, that does the job 80% of the time. And then even though that doesn't like, like let's say it's, if it's like, you know, writing, um, you know, writing your emails for you, mm. right? Like, um, mm. like you know, Gmail has autocomplete now. And for me, it's like, I I don't know, I I actually like kind of use it relatively often, mm. but it's still maybe only like 20, 25% of the time yep. that one of their their completions makes sense. Yep. But like, that's still really valuable it's to me because, um, because it's like, when I do use it, it just saves me a bunch of time. Uh -huh. And so, um, but it's, it's not anywhere near like the automating the task of writing email. Um, <laughs> And so I think a lot of AI systems are going to look like that in the near term, where it's like you're um, you're taking a high level task that someone does, 
and you're taking pieces of that task and you're starting out by like kind of um, doing 80% of that of that task for someone um, so that it's like easier for them to correct the output of the AI than it is for them to do it from scratch. And then over time, we're gonna move to like, um, you know, fully automating pieces of tasks that people do so that they can entirely focus their effort on things that are, you know, higher level, that um, that, yeah, that they're good at. And I think for the most part that they want to do. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of my overall take. I mean, there are definitely pockets where um, there will be automation and there will probably be near-term job loss from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's um, and I, I think that there will be, there will be, you know, negative consequences from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'm optimistic that in the long term, um, like most technologies don't, um, you know, don't permanently eliminate jobs. They kind of, um, actually like, I think most technologies net increase the number of jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm optimistic that the same thing will be true for AI. That's really, and as I wonder if anybody's done that has ever kind of researched the net for each technology, how many jobs were created in the past from it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I know people have looked at this like for the Industrial Revolution, for yeah. example. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the um, I don't remember the details, but the takeaway was that like, um, you know, there was a period of, of in that case, massive job loss. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the long run, you know, the number of jobs that we have available now relative to pre-industrial revolution is like many orders of magnitude larger. Interesting, yeah. Um, and to me, it makes, it keeps on going back to this long tail point that if you're in the long tail, if you've found your kind of specialty, your North Star, your, your, you'll dig in to the point where nobody else can kind of match you in that weird thing that you do. Um, and so it require like to me, it's becoming clearer and clearer that it requires this essentially search for meaning that each individual person needs to do in order to find that, that thing that they do, that they want to do, or that, that, that draws them, basically. Yeah, I think there's like a really interesting, you know, super long-term question of like, let's say that we do create an AI that is just better at work than we are, then what do people do and where do we get meaning from at that point? Um, and um, yeah, I don't know where I, where I land on this, but um, it's, yeah, I'm curious, like, do you have a, like, what do you think? Do you think that's going to be? There's an Asimov book that goes into it, and it's like the farthest in the future that I've ever found of, of like, you know, how far in the future can we take? I guess Foundation was pretty close to that but as well, but there's an Isaac Asimov book that I can't remember what it was, but he says that we'll just be doing art all day, um, yeah. and that we'll just be directing the, the machines to do the art that we come up with, so mm-hmm. we'll create these imagination palaces, and then the art, the art will just kind of go. Yeah, I think that's, that's plausible. Um, I mean, I think some people argue that, like, we need sort of um, something more meaningful than that. Mm-hmm. Like we need to feel like we're contributing I to think. society. But um, uh, interesting. I don't know if, uh, yeah, I don't know how much of that is intrinsic or how much of that is just, um, uh-huh. is just, you know, that's, that's the way that we're told that we're supposed to interact with society. Yeah, that's a good question. And then it gets into also like how have humans traditionally found meaning uh, and that would be religion uh some some in spirituality but a lot of a lot of people in religion of having like a community of of people all Mm -hmm. believe the same thing so a lot a lot of it comes down to believing i was just having a conversation with somebody today it's like i've never really felt as part of a group um but a lot of people define their individuality based on the the group that they happen to be part of yeah um and so i think that's going to be a huge thing uh definitely you can start to see that now in san francisco i, I think of of all these little tiny like weird subgroups that people find themselves in and like going to 
there's one this week, uh, Reimagine Death, uh, where a whole bunch of people are all getting together about this idea of reimagining what death means to somebody. Uh, and then this is ecstatic dance, like we were talking about. Then there's you know all these all these things that are popping up that people attend to, and then they really find that meaning from group group interaction. Mm-hmm. I find the thing that I find disingenuous about uh, in San Francisco is that people also do it in order in a covert way to find a better job as well. Uh, which Interesting. Is <laughs> yeah, I haven't I haven't noticed that, but it's, uh, it uh, makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, San Francisco is is at the forefront of some of this stuff, it seems like. Um, I think for better and for worse. Yeah. And that's what I always, I've lived a lot of other countries and I'd always go and then come back because this is where I'm from. And, mm-hmm. and whenever I would come back, I'd feel like I'm stepping into the future a little bit, and, uh, yeah. which is really interesting. It's still true. Um, but the gap between the change is, is happening. And now what I'm really excited, what I'm going to start doing with the show is uh, going to other places where technology is being produced and, and seeing how it's affecting that and creating that and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it should be really interesting. I mean, I think, um, you know, even other places like New York or Pittsburgh where a lot of really amazing technology is being built have very different cultures around, you know, um, around like how people interact with creating technology. So, totally. yeah. yeah. I'm very excited because each one has its own flavor and like mm-hmm. uh, and like that flavor comes out and the problems that they're solving too, right? Like, yeah. you know, New York has creativity. I was, just, I was interviewing somebody who's in Mumbai and Mumbai is like the mix, is the Indian version of both New York and LA mixed in one city. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all, like it's, it's gonna be, it's, it could be very, very interesting. I'm excited about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. So thank you so much for coming on the show and how, how can people find out more about you? You're on Twitter, right? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm on Twitter. My handle is uh, uh, Josh underscore Tobin underscore. And anything else you want my listeners to understand about you? No, don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> cool. So uh, reach out to Josh on, on Twitter and with your AI questions. Yeah, please do. Please do. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Thanks. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Josh Tobin of OpenAI. Uh, I will be publishing episodes Monday through Friday. I'm probably going to take a break on Christmas tomorrow or next week. Um, But yeah, I'll be publishing episodes Monday through Friday and I'll be going strong uh, throughout the new year coming up. And also I will be publishing more episodes in Spanish very soon, probably after the new year. Um, And so if you speak Spanish, go ahead and find Crazy Wisdom Español on Twitter uh, where I'll be publishing those episodes and I'll be doing various social media retreats in Spanish. So I'll take a few days off of English and uh, only tweet in Spanish. So you can find that at Get Crazy Wisdom ESP, uh, at Crazy Wisdom ESP. Uh, Again, that's at Crazy Wisdom ESP. And yeah, have a great day and hope you enjoy these episodes.